U.S. President Joe Biden saying today, I made clear Russia would pay a severe and immediate price for its atrocities in Bucha. Today, along with our allies and partners, we're announcing a new round of devastating sanctions. Those sanctions target Russian President Vladimir Putin's adult daughters, uh, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov's wife and daughter, members of Russia's Security Council, and Americans are now banned from investing in Russia. So that's the latest round of sanctions. Of course, you're probably aware of the situation in Bucha at this point. The pictures of the misery that was visited upon the people of Bucha, Ukraine, over the weekend, and other areas around the capital, not just there, uh, have horrified the world. Um, Russian troops left, Ukrainian troops moved into the area, and we saw evidence of, as U.S. President Joe Biden said, atrocities and war crimes. Um, Citizens, men, women, children killed, some with their hands tied behind their backs, mass graves. Once again, it reopened the debate about what NATO and indeed what Canada should be doing to try and help defend Ukraine in all of this. We're going to chat now with Christian Luprecht, who is a national security expert, class of 1965 professor at the Royal Military College and a professor in the Department of Political Science and Economics at Queen's University. Christian, thanks for joining us today. Appreciate your time as always. Good morning. My pleasure. So let's just take a look at this. You know, it's been clear from right at the start that, you know, NATO wasn't going to do anything that might trigger World War III, as they put it. Nothing has changed on that front as a result of what we saw this weekend, right? The no-fly zone is not back up for discussion or or any other use of troops, essentially. That's still off the table, right? Uh, Yes, so any full use of troops, but of course there has been significant logistical support, there has been support for uh, some of the individuals who've been injured, um, and it appears there's also significant intelligence support. So uh, what's not happening is is kinetic uh, uh, support on the ground for Ukrainian troops per se, um, with actual members in Ukrainian land, uh, air, or maritime domain territory. Um, but NATO has provided and is providing considerable support uh, to the Ukrainian uh, effort, uh, without which likely the Ukrainians would have not been able to uh, resist as valiantly as they have. Okay, so we'll get into what's going on and what assistance is being offered in a second. I want to go back to before the actual invasion. Was NATO, was Canada and NATO doing enough um, in advance? Did they bolster Ukrainian defenses as much as they could have prior to the invasion? I mean, this it, I don't think it was, you know, news. I mean, we know what happened in 2014. Could we have done more prior to, you know, late February than we did? Well, we should have probably done a lot more um, about 15 years earlier. Uh, Once uh, Vladimir Putin took his authoritarian turn, especially his infamous speech at the 2007 Munich Security Conference, where it should have been clear to the West uh, that uh, serious deterrence was required. And what Putin got for 15 years was slaps on the wrist about don't do this again or don't do that again. Um, Whether that's his actions in Georgia, it's his actions in Syria, it's the actions by the Wagner Group around the world, uh, it's his efforts to interfere in various democratic processes and in the political and economic processes of a, of a host of countries around the world. And every time Putin got off with um, sort of minimal penalties, so there was no reason to, for him to think that he was, uh, there was going to be anything more severe happening uh, this time. And I think the, the, the relatively mild repercussions under the Obama administration 
administration for Putin really emboldened him. So it was very important. I think this is something that the Obama administration understood. Obama being a good uh, Cold Warrior and having spent 20 years uh, in U.S. politics during the Cold War, uh, he understood that uh, the alliance and the United States, as the undisputed leader of the alliance, would have to make good uh, on their threats and on serious threats. The challenge that the alliance has now is Putin, in many ways, still controls the escalation ladder. He decides what weapons to use. He decides where to attack, how to attack, how much human suffering to impose. And so NATO and the United States needs to be able to continue to be able to ratchet up the, the ability of those sanctions and to continue to inflict uh, ever greater degrees of pain on Russia, because if Putin continues to escalate, but we don't then retaliate uh, in the political or economic uh, domain, then that will embolden him further. Do you think, seriously, Christian, that the economic pain that we're trying to inflict upon Russia and Putin himself, you know, targeting his adult daughters today, will that be enough? I mean, it doesn't seem like he's really too concerned at all about economic sanctions. I mean, they were threatened long before this began and didn't seem to have any effect. Yeah, some of this is symbolic, but symbolism here matters as well in the sense that, of course, these are all folks that have stolen billions of rubles uh, from the Russian state. In fact, the whole reason they continue to run the Russian state and have taken sort of control of it uh, is precisely because they see it as an extraction mechanism to enrich themselves. Uh, 145, the 145 wealthiest Russians own uh, as much as the other 145 million Russians put together. So you can see the enormous uh, kleptocracy uh, that is at play here. And what this ensures, what these sanctions ensure, it's a signal that um, all these folks, like they like their luxuries. They like their yachts. They like traveling to New York and to London to go shopping, uh, to order sort of these, the, the, these, uh, the, the ostentatious wealth in terms of cars and so forth. And that's what it cuts them off from. It's sort of, it, it means that they can no longer live sort of their ostentatious life lifestyle with impunity, um, buying apartments in Paris and so forth. And so I think it sort of sends a signal that for the rest of your life, you may not want to plan on leaving Russia because chances are um, you'll either find yourself arrested or all the stuff that you already own in the West is now effectively going to be repossessed. Let's talk about what Canada is doing or what Canada could do. Uh, What kind of assistance are we providing militarily? What kind of support are we offering to Ukraine as this all unfolds? Well, I mean, that depends entirely, you know, we, uh, what, what perspective you have on this. If you listen to the Minister of Foreign Affairs, the Prime Minister and the Minister of National Defense, uh, we're doing everything we can. I think those are the words that the government likes to keep on using. If you listen to the Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, and you listen to the Obama administration and, uh, uh, sorry, the Biden administration and President Biden, uh, there are serious admonishments for Canada not doing anywhere near enough. And the reason we're not doing enough is, on the defense side, uh, we had 20 years of privilege where we could basically have considerable discretion as to uh, how we assisted other countries with the force packages that sort of we could tailor to our capabilities. Well, that's no longer the case. The cupboard is bare, and the capabilities that are now required, we either don't have or we've already deployed everything we have. Uh, Canada has not met requests from both the Biden administration and from European 
allies uh, to shore up energy security, where the, um, we have considerable natural gas, but we are either unwilling or unable to export that liquefied natural gas uh, to Europe, and that's fundamentally a political decision. Um, and uh, we've made lots of sanctions announcements, but uh, to the best of my knowledge, there are no assets by Russian kleptocrats uh, that have been frozen, even though we know, for instance, that there's lots of dirty Russian money uh, in the real estate market in Canada, in particular in, in, uh, in Toronto. So, you know, I think the Allies are looking at this and going, you know, Canada is an unreliable ally, as I've written recently in the Globe and Mail in, uh, um, in an op-ed. And so it'll be very interesting to watch tomorrow whether the government and the federal budget will take the opportunity to make uh, not just grandiose announcements about money that in the end, with the convoluted procurement and hiring processes we have, we can't make good on, or whether we're actually going to make some procedural and legislative changes to be able to follow through on the grand announcements uh, that the federal government likes to make. And I should say that, you know, these are not just faults of the current government. We've had uh, 20 years of governments that have really ignored our capacity to be a good, reliable ally when it comes to Canadian international policy. So is there anything we can do or, or like you say, I mean, through negligence or whatever the case may be over the past many, many years, are we just in a position where we don't have anything to offer? I mean, is there anything we can do? Well, we can certainly commit to a significant rebuild of the Canadian Armed Forces over the next 15 years, uh, the way Germany has. And uh, money is only part of the problem here um, because we've worn down the organization so significantly. The government could make a commitment to ensuring that uh, we actually um, enable the pipeline capacity that would be necessary uh, to get natural gas to the East Coast and to build a liquefied natural gas terminal. Uh, on the East Coast, and I think this would generate significant revenue for Canada that in a grand bargain, the government could then say is going to be reinvested in decarbonization and the energy transition. So I do think that this is what could politically be squared. Uh, and the government could actually take uh, some of the uh, findings that are coming out of the Cullen Commission on Money Laundering in British Columbia and translate these into effective legislative changes. Um, the government keeps on saying, for instance, it's going to make changes with regards to beneficial ownership rules and so forth that would have a significant impact. The government announced a Canada Financial Crimes Agency uh, to great fanfare to, uh, uh, as of present, nothing really has happened other than, uh, than a grandiose uh, announcement. The government in 2019 was going to restructure our uh, very um, uh, convoluted procurement, defense procurement structure. We're the only ally that has two defense procurement bureaucracies in the federal government and two ministers responsible. Uh, and, uh, and in 2021 that entirely disappeared from the platform. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of things that Canada could be doing and could be announcing in tomorrow's federal budget. So I, for one, will be looking very closely as to whether this is just going to be fog and mirrors, mm -hmm. what we're going to see tomorrow. Um, and I think the people who will be watching the closest is the Biden administration, our European allies, as to whether we can still be taken seriously as a reliable ally. Hey, Christian, do you have a minute to hang on and then we can ask about what NATO could do? Sure. Okay, I'll, I'll put you on hold. We'll take a quick break, and then, you know, we've talked about what Canada can or can't do, but what about our allies? What about NATO? Is there more we can be doing to help defend Ukraine? We'll talk about that right after this. Just seeing that um, the United States announcing they're going to send another $100 million in Javelin missiles to Ukraine. So uh, the steady supply of weaponry continues, although there's constantly a call for more. We're chatting with Christian Luprecht now, who is a national security expert and a professor at the Royal Military College and at Queen's University. Um, Christian, we talked about 
Canada and uh, their involvement. What about NATO? I mean, we know that there is that red line of not getting, quote-unquote, boots on the ground in Ukraine. Is there more they can do, or is it just the supplying of the weaponry, or are there other things that could be done that may not trigger an escalation that we haven't tried yet? Yeah, I mean, there's a host of options, and I think you'll see at the uh, early June NATO meeting a number of those options. I think is going to lay out its plan, um, both for the publics that will need to support it, as well as, of course, for the Putin regime. Um, NATO will need to continue to show political um, uh, resilience uh, and deterrence by standing united. Uh, there'll be continued pressure to ensure you contain Russia politically, economically, militarily, and I think, as Biden pointed out in his remarks in Poland, uh, that this might be a challenge for many years to come, certainly as long as Putin and uh, his coterie remain in power. Uh, the, I think, greatest challenge will be making sure you keep publics on side in reinvesting uh, in defense capacity, because as the Americans will keep on insisting, of course, Russia is not the only problem that we have in the world. We have um, a major country in Asia-Pacific, that is to say China, that has uh, articulated similar intentions to redraw uh, the map in its own region. And so all the soldiers and attention that the U.S. diverts to Europe means those are resources that are not available in the Asia-Pacific. So they'll be considerable pressure on European allies and on countries such as Canada to do more in the European theater so that the Americans can focus on challenges elsewhere in the world, because, of course, authoritarianism um, is, uh, is, is showing its ambitions um, uh, across the globe. And so considerable challenges here for NATO, not just immediately on the Russian periphery, but, uh, um, but further afield. And so I think what we'll see here is, or what we'll hopefully see, uh, is more members, including Canada, understanding uh, that they have a key role to play and that uh, NATO, especially for Canada, is arguably our most important multilateral international policy force multiplier as an institution um, and uh, that uh, it is time for us to step up and to play that role because we all have the memory from the first half of the 20th century of the blood and treasure that it costs if we actually get into a hot kinetic war. And so investing a little bit to increase the insurance premium that we pay and that NATO member countries and allied countries are paying uh, to try to keep the peace uh, is a much better investment than getting ourselves dragged into uh, an actual kinetic quagmire. And I think that's the message that NATO is sending to Putin and it's sending to uh, its uh, um, its members, but um, yeah, it shows that the United States is out front. Yep. Everybody's and everybody's trying to follow, um, and uh, we need to, I think, be better prepared to be able to make contributions that end up mirroring uh, in spirit uh, and in action that what the United States is putting forward. And it would also show Christian, and I think this would be important. Correct me if I'm wrong. That. Uh, we're committed to this as long as it may take, right? We're going to make these investments and we're going to take this stance and we're going to do these things and we'll continue to do them, right? I mean, you need to to get it out there and make it clear that this isn't something that we're going to forget about. We're going to be here to make sure we see this through. Um, that was the message from the Biden administration. We might be here not just for months, but likely for years. And I mean, from a broader, from the uh, Russian periphery perspective, I mean, Russia has been coercing its periphery uh, by force for 600 years, since the 15th century. Um, and uh, I think we, we had some amnesia when we thought that uh, we could trust uh, the Russian regime and when we had regime change uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s. And I think the message here for NATO and NATO member countries is that 
um, regardless of what transpires in Russia, you ultimately can't trust Russian intentions and ambitions and that this crumbling empire uh, will continue to try to rear its head and try to assert itself and that the greatest threat that it has uh, is ultimately democratization. And, and that's what Ukraine is about. It's not about NATO membership or Russian security. Uh, it's about this democratic experiment uh, on the Russian periphery um, that poses an existential threat to the Putin regime. Um, so what do you expect to see next from NATO? Is it, I mean, is there anything else that can be done in terms of, and you know, we've talked a lot about long-term and reinvestment and building up defense forces in Canada and other NATO locations, but in terms of what's happening right now today in, into this weekend, do you expect to see any change in position from NATO or is it just going to be continued to supply weaponry? Will there be more, I don't know, exercises like you say or something? Will there be some more show of force or in any way? Well, I think certainly if Putin continues to escalate, if he uses non-conventional weapons, whether that's chemical weapons, uh, as he did in Syria, where they were deployed in a heinous way to force people out of bunkers because chemical weapons drop to uh, drop to the ground and into bunkers, forcing uh, local populations then out, and then you call in the airstrikes and you hit those local populations. If we start to see that sort of pattern, I think, um, or if we start to see the use of tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine, I think that might very much change the NATO posture, uh, also about possible involvement, uh, certainly with regards to a no-fly zone or trying to take out uh, take out Russian assets. Um, so I think um, there is a real sense here over that we got over the last two days that with these atrocities, uh, that NATO is prepared to continue to escalate and to step up um, uh, relative to uh, Russian actions, and that's going to be an important component in terms of deterrence. So I would say that. Uh, yeah, we'll continue on the logistics front. We'll continue to provide so-called defensive weapons, even though I'm not sure there is such a thing as a defensive weapon per se. Um, uh, so I think that's a that's a political ruse that politicians are trying to sell our populations. We actually need to make sure that the Ukrainians continue to have ammunition. They're running short on ammunition. Much of this gear we don't actually manufacture, so it means that we're either going to need to train them on our own gear and give them our own gear, um, or we're going to need to find other ways to support them. But there's going to be a significant uh, need and demand, not just to sustain, as you point out, what we're currently doing, uh, but to have the potential to escalate yeah. uh, relative to Putin's actions. Yeah, to ramp it up. Uh, Christian, great uh, insight. Thanks so much for joining us, as always. Appreciate your time. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for the conversation. Have you a bet. good morning. You too. That is Christian Luprecht, who is a national security expert, class of 65 professor at Royal Military College. He's a professor, professor in the Department of Political Science and Economics at Queen's University.